temptations, various trials, various challenges, and maybe we feel good about ourselves because we've resisted this, we've overcome that, and yet Satan is persistent. We really have to be on guard all the time, everywhere. You would think after all that Nehemiah has been through, after all of the stress of talking to Artaxerxes, and getting the people busy to work, working, the various uh, uh, ridicule of the enemies, the threats and intimidation, the discouragement of the people because uh, their morale was low with the exhaustion and the overwhelming task, and then all the problems among the people because of the usury, and then all of the diversionary tactics of the enemies trying to really uh, get... Uh, uh, Nehemiah in a place where they could ambush him. Wow, that's a lot to deal with. And Nehemiah has been just as straight as an arrow on all of this. Very firm, very solid, very focused. But we're not done. You'd think, what else can they pull out of their hats? You know, I mean, this ought to be about everything you could come up with. You know, I don't know that if I were masterminding things for the enemy, I would know what else to suggest. But they've got another approach. So we're back, back in Nehemiah 6, and would somebody read 10 to 14? Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Jehoiah, the son of Jehoiah, was continued, confined to his home, which he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, in the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, and they are coming to kill you by now. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, go up in, and I understood and saw that God had not seen him because he had not prophesied against him because Tobiah and Sandal had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and that they could give me a bad name in order to not Remember Tobiah and Sandal, oh my God, according to these things that they did, not to the prophets, nor that of the rest of the prophets, prophets who were in the late years. Okay, good. So in verse 10, uh, Nehemiah went to an old friend's house, uh, Shemaiah, who was confined at home, and Shemaiah has some advice, uh, suggestion, or whatever you might say about this. What does Shemaiah want uh, Daniel to do, want uh, Nehemiah to do? 
Why to meet in the temple? Yes, exactly. Uh, there's a threat. They're coming to kill you tonight. You really need to hide in the temple. Uh, he's, he's trying to protect Nehemiah, you know, from this terrible threat, from what might happen to him, and the temple would be a place where he could hide out, where they perhaps couldn't violate the sacred space or whatever. Uh, isn't it nice to have friends like that who are always looking out for your best interests and always wanting to take care of you? Uh, what do you see in that? What did Nehemiah see in that? Yes, exactly. What what made him see that there was a problem with this? What was the problem? Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, and what, what, what would have happened if he had gone into the temple? Yeah, Tyler? Because? Okay, one thing is you just don't flee, you don't go AWOL, but I think there's more to it than that, Sean. He wasn't supposed to be in the temple. That's right. Who was supposed to be in the temple? The priests. Was Nehemiah a priest? Should he violate that holy space to save his life? What if he had? What would that have shown? He was a coward? Lack of trust in God? More eager to save his own life than to respect the Lord? Um... What would that then, what, if, what would have happened then? Well, I mean, it would have set a precedent for the people that you only follow God up to a point that it, as long as it doesn't mean your life. And yeah. the example for that in the wall. And what would people have then thought of Nehemiah? You know, it would have been a perfect way to discredit his leadership to hurt the people's morale, to realize they've got this leader who's inspiring this project who's really more concerned about saving his skin than he is about doing what God wants him to do. I, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's the, the intention of this, really. And Nehemiah realizes that surely God has not sent him. You know, this is not the Lord's will because it contradicts what the Lord says in his word. You know, and he realizes... He's another tool of, of the enemy. It's amazing that they had managed to buy Shemaiah's help. You know, money talks. Think about Judas and others. And so they paid him enough money to try to use an old friend of Nehemiah's to seduce him into doing something sinful to try to protect himself. You know... You know it can't come from God if it's inconsistent with what he says. God's word, God's law trumps everything. There are so many passages that talk about false prophets and false teachers and people who lie to uh, try to get you to do what's wrong. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, in verse uh, 20, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. 
There, there's, there's lots of passages that warn about that. We've got to be careful. It may be somebody that's an old friend. Maybe somebody that we're really close to, that we really like, that we've seen as spiritual. But they start telling us to do something that is against what the Word says. God's Word has priority over old friends or respected leaders or whatever. There are times that there will be people we really trust and look up to. There may be a teacher here at this camp or people in your congregation or whatever that may start teaching things that really aren't right. And it, it, it's, a, it's a challenge to us because when it's somebody you trust, when it's an old friend, when it's somebody you've always looked up to and respected, God can get a, or the devil can get a lot more mileage out of using them because, uh, because they're, it's more deceptive. You know, it's the wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, who would suspect brother so-and-so would ever mislead you? So it really speaks well of, of Nehemiah that he was that discerning. And he again prays, remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So Nehemiah is asking God to, to remember his enemies and punish them for what they've done you know, against the Lord. Comments and thoughts on this other tactic the enemies used. But it's going to happen sometimes. Other thoughts? Jay? Um, what does it mean when it says For some reason or other, he is, uh, he can't go get out. I don't know if that's a security thing. I don't know if that's a health thing. I'm not sure why, but uh, Nehemiah goes there to visit him because he doesn't get out. Other thoughts? So think about Satan's tactics, the distractions, the false accusations, and even this attempt to convince Nehemiah that in this situation the best thing would be to disobey. We have to be, be aware of the devil's tactics. So, after all that, we're still building on the wall. Somebody read 15 to 19. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Vera, and his son Jehoahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I had said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Okay, so what's the final result? Walls. The walls. How long did it take? 52 days. How long had it been that the walls had not been repaired? We're in 445. When were the walls originally torn down? 586 or something like that. The people come back in about 538. We're down to 445. 
Isn't it amazing that something that hadn't been done in even the 90 years after they'd come back from captivity was accomplished in 52 days? That shows what the Lord can do when people are willing to work and work together. And what one man like Nehemiah can do with the Lord's blessing and help. If it hadn't been for Nehemiah coming back, at least from a human perspective, this job wouldn't have gotten done. Sometimes we fail to realize how one person standing up and encouraging people to do what's right may change a whole situation. You really have to respect Nehemiah in that. And the nations, they recognized this had been God. You know, it wasn't just Nehemiah. Nehemiah has been careful all the way through to recognize this is the hand of the Lord, and the enemies have seen that. Uh, so, this is just an amazing event. 52 days after they started this project, the walls have been rebuilt. Comments and thoughts on that? Yes, Ben. It's amazing what can happen in 52 days. Yeah, you're exactly right. You get a bunch of teams of people working daily, hard, for 52 days. Wow. We, we so often look at, well, this seems like such a big task. I could never do it. A day at a time. You do anything for 52 days, you can get a lot done. Lucas. Well, he should be uh, very pleased since Nehemiah has done exactly what he has. Sean. To me, Nehemiah in this is a really good example to us. I mean, he was they tried to thwart him several different times, and yet um, with determination and trust in God, he completed what he was trying to do. And I think the same applies to us if we're trying to battle something. If we just don't give in, then eventually things will come together as they should. Amen. John. What year did you say that the walls were destroyed? Probably about 586. Dead. Um, this is an example for me for um, the effects and power of prayer. Uh, so it took 52 days for them to finish this wall. But Nehemiah spent around four months, is that right? I think so. Praying beforehand for this work. Uh, I wonder what my life would look like if I you know, applied two parts prayer for one part action. Yeah, great point. Amen. That may be the bigger lesson in this. Notice also that you've got these letters back and forth from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah and Tobiah back to them because there's been these intermarriages with these uh, foreigners and they're coming to Nehemiah and saying what about Tobiah? Yeah, you know, Tobiah's really not such a bad person. You know, you really probably ought to have a more positive attitude toward him. You know, there's a lot of good in a man like Tobiah that you may just not recognize. <laughs> do, you, do you ever hear things like that today? I mean, we are being tempted a lot of times to not oppose those who teach false doctrine, those who live uh, lives that are not faithful to the Lord or whatever. And people want to say, but, but you ought to look at the positive things. 
got to look at the good in these people. Well, should we look at the good in Tobiah? I mean, what's he been doing all through here? He's been with the enemy trying to stop the wall being rebuilt. And now that it's rebuilt, all of a sudden, Tobiah is such a great guy. And furthermore, what did Tobiah send to Nehemiah? That kind of belied the attempt on the part of the nobles to rehabilitate Tobiah's image. If he's really such a good guy, what's he doing sending these letters to try to intimidate Nehemiah? You know, he's kind of trying to get it both ways. Get him to talk good about him to Nehemiah and also threatening Nehemiah on the side. There's a lot of times when Satan's tactic is to try to get us to see good and bad. He wants us to confuse good and evil. He wants us to start thinking the bad is good. The bad people are good people. The bad teachings are good teachings. The bad behavior is good behavior. He wants us to get those things confused. And we'll have people who will tell us, no, no, you shouldn't be so hard on this. It's not really that bad. So Nehemiah continues to, to be firm in, in all of this. Very encouraging to see that. Comments and questions? Micah. Uh, that I am not sure about. Is he? Okay. Your dad says yes, so he's taking it up on that. Same father. Same father. Okay. Thank you. Cameron. It's interesting that we, when we get a job done, we think that the, the trial is going to be over or whatever. But here, he, his trials continue even after the job is done, that uh, the opposition still happens. And we need to not let our, down, our guard down when, when the job's done. Great point, yeah. We accomplished something, and then like, okay, we're great. Well, no. The work continues. Maybe not the work on the wall, but there's more work to be done. We'll certainly see that in the rest of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 6. It's the 13-chapter book. You know, and, and I, I think people do that even with a camp like this. I think one of our most vulnerable moments, really, is when we leave camp. Oh, yeah. you know, we've, been, we've been on this high, and like... I've done all this spiritual stuff for a week. I'm really tired, and I've just been doing great. Now I can just let myself go and relax and have fun for a few days, because after all, I've done so good for this week. I hear from guys a lot that the time right after camp is sometimes some of their worst time. They hear they've been built up. You'd think it'd be the best time. But if we ever relax, if we ever think, okay, now I've accomplished it, now I can just kind of uh, let myself go and not have to worry about it. We are going to fall. So that's a good point. Nehemiah had to continue to keep his guard up and keep fighting for the Lord. Other thoughts? Jerry. Um, The enemy doesn't quit. We can't quit either. William. I was going to say, I know you said before that sometimes we treat you know, our work like, like medicine. Where it's like we have to take the medicine, but it doesn't make us feel very good. We just know it'll help us, so we kind of have to just drink it and hope it'll do some good. But that's not how we should view our work for the Lord. Because um, if that's how we view it, then we have the wrong kind of motivation. And obviously, Nehemiah didn't think of it that way. He didn't think of it as like, well, I've got to build this wall, and hopefully I get done, I can finally take a, a vacation. No, it's like, his, his, work, 
his work is what fulfilled him. His work for the Lord. It was like this bad thing that he had to do to complete his job. No, he, he loved it all. And he was fulfilled and motivated by it all. Our life is for the Lord. Noah? Anything else? Well, so we kind of think we'd get, we've gotten to the end of the book. You know, we've got the walls built. That ought to be everything. But it's not at all. Would somebody read chapter 7, verses 1 to 4? Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them be shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious. But the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. Alright, we've already got several issues that need to be dealt with. For one thing, the goal is not just walls. What's supposed to be happening inside Jerusalem? Living. <coughs> Living and celebrating, worshipping, praising God. So he appoints the singers and the Levites. The highest priority is not just getting walls. But, but the worship of the Lord, honoring and glorifying the Lord, is not just protecting the house. So he's concerned about that, and he's working on that. Then also you've got the question of, of just the, uh, the proper guarding of the city, even with walls. Walls themselves are not going to keep this city secure. So he takes Hananiah's brother, remember him from back in chapter 1, and Hananiah, the cat, commander of the fortress, and puts him in charge of Jerusalem. Now, it's a little unclear, and there's a debate, and I don't know the answer. It may be these two guys are the same person. It's possible to translate it that way. It may be these two guys are different people. I don't really know. It doesn't really matter. He selects Hananiah, at least, because he was a faithful man and a God-fearing man. That's certainly the kind of man you would trust to be in charge of an important responsibility, and their responsibility is to make sure that Jerusalem continues to be protected. Now, you've got the walls around it, but how could the enemy slip in? Through the gates. You've got gates. You open the gates. What good does it do to have a wall? <laughs> you know, so they've got to guard those gates. They can do several things. One is, they don't keep them open very well. You know, you're not keeping these gates open 24-7. He says, don't let the gates be open until the sun's hot. And, and then you stand guard and then you shut and bolt the doors. You've got guards at the gates. So that's a big thing. You're going to have uh, to really try to make sure that the, the city is properly guarded. Uh, and, and that's going to require the people at the gates, vigilance when the gates are open and things like that. Uh, sometimes we think that, that we, uh, we do something and that's going to keep us protected. Well, there may be some, some walls we build to protect ourselves from Satan. 
But if we don't watch and pray and stay vigilant, Satan will get in the back door somehow. You know, just building barriers doesn't keep us safe. It's a step, but we still have to be on top of it. Nehemiah sees to it that there are people in charge of overseeing, guarding those gates and making sure that the enemy doesn't get in. But that's not all. Look at verse 4. What's the other issue here? There were people or houses. There's nobody hardly that lives in Jerusalem. Now, can you see why there wouldn't be? Why? Well, why weren't there houses? There was no protection. Jerusalem had not been a city that you would feel secure in. You know, who wants to be in a city with no walls? You know, it's kind of like in Brazil. Brazilians really are astonished at American uh, houses. Because if you have a decent house in Brazil, it's behind a wall. You know, and, and they're like, you really don't have walls? You never go up to the door in Brazil and knock on the door. You go up to the gate and clap at the gate. Because you can't get in. Um, and so... That, that their idea is, well, how would, why would you have a nice house that wouldn't have a wall around it? Well, we've got some other approaches to that. Uh, but, but for them, you're not going to move in a city if it doesn't have walls to protect you. So here they got this nicely walled, secure city of God with hardly anybody living in it. That's an issue. And that needs to be dealt with. Um, if, if, if suddenly we build this city, the city walls back, who wants to move? I don't know. You want to move? How many of you really want to move right now? Huh? Not very many. You know, I mean, if I said we've got this deserted city with no houses in it. It's got a nice wall though. How many of you really would like to move there? Yeah. I got one or two semi-hands. But, you know, most of us, I mean, I, I like where I live. I mean, I'm comfortable there. Why would I want to move? So that's going to be the next issue he has to deal with. So what we see is that just getting the wall built has not solved everything. we got a lot more to deal with and focus on. Nehemiah's job is not done. Comments and questions on those four verses. Well, this next section is a bit uh, interesting. He says in verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who first came up, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his, own, his city, who came with Zerubbabel, and so forth and so on. And you start looking through the rest of chapter 7, then that's fascinating reading, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, I want you to look back at Ezra chapter 2. This is fascinating reading in duplicate. Because if you read, look back at Ezra chapter 2, starting in verse 1, particularly starting in verse 2 and following, what do you see? It's almost the exact same thing. Not a big surprise, because if you listen carefully to what I read, what they find is that original list of groups that returned 
from the captivity back when Cyrus issued the decree in 538-ish for them to come back and under the leadership of Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel uh, the leader, they came back, nearly 50,000 of them, and they're listed by groups in Ezra 2, and now he copies that list again here in Nehemiah 7. Now, in one sense, this is an exciting list of people. Because these are the people who had wanted to go back to Judah and Jerusalem after they'd been in captivity for 50, 60, 70 years. How many of you, think about your family. 50 years ago would be 1964. 70 years ago would be 1944. How many of you have ancestors, your, your grandparents or whoever, who would have been not in the United States in a period like from 44 to 64? How many of you, your fathers, your grandfathers or whatever, weren't in the U.S. back in 44 to 64? Wow, several of you, probably 10 or so. How many of you really want to go back to the homeland where your ancestors were from 44 to 64. Anybody? One? Two? I mean, move back. Move back. U.S. or Canada, you mean, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, U.S. or Canada. Sorry about that. I forgot the fact we're a little cosmopolitan here already. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if your whatever, father, grandfather, whatever, was living in the old country in the, in the 50s or early 60s, you sure aren't that interested in migrating back there because you grew up here. And I bet you, maybe your parents, even if they started out there and they've moved here, they may not want to go back. So this list is actually a list of courageous people who wanted to go back to God's, God's land, even though they put down roots and lived for a long time in Babylon, now taken over by Persia. So in one sense, this is a really exciting list. But in another sense, it wasn't too exciting for us to read all those names to begin with in Ezra 2, and now we've got them again here in Nehemiah 7. And you're thinking, why, why copy this list over again right here? What's the point? Well, I think the point is what we're going to see. We don't see it yet. Sometimes you almost have to read a whole book, maybe a few times, before you start seeing how things come together. But it looks to me like what we've got here is, all right, let's go back to the list of the returnees. Because we're going to need to select some people to ask them to move inside Jerusalem. And so we need a comprehensive list of who's moved back to start with, so then we can find out some way of deciding who the people are who are going to need to move into Jerusalem. I think that's the point of this list. And uh, so these are the families and the groupings that are back in this area from which will be selected uh, in chapter 11 uh, the people to move into um, the, this, uh, the city of Jerusalem that's underpopulated. Comments and questions on all this so far? Micah? Um, I don't want to be annoying, but I am curious and don't really know how I would answer if I were asked. Uh, in Ezra 2 4, it says that the sons of Ere were 775, and in Nehemiah. There are several numbers that aren't the same. 
probably they're copyist errors, more than likely. I think that's the most likely explanation. You remember that uh, numbers in Hebrew are letters. And uh, Jeff, if you have, are in that older class showing the, the, the tittle, the difference between you know, Hebrew letters sometimes is very small. You know, if you've got a context and you're reading a context, then you know what letter it is because you know what word fits. You know, kind of like when we're reading somebody's handwriting. Sometimes we may not recognize a letter, but we know what it has to be because we understand the context and what the word needs to be. But if you're reading a number, kind of a random number, then it's easy to mistake one number, one letter for another. That's probably the best explanation. Other questions are coming. All right, let me notice something else with you here in chapter 7. In uh, verse uh, 7, notice that some of them gave all these things to the work. Uh, the governor gave to the treasury, in verse 70, a thousand gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Some of the heads of the father's households gave into the treasury of the work, 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priest garments. This is kind of an interesting little thing in that. These are some of the contributions, some of the donations the people make first for the work of the Lord. I think this was probably historically before they've even established themselves in this new land, before they've set up their own houses and farms and all that. But they, they just... Volunteer, voluntarily gave money for the work of God. That just speaks so well of people. You know, how many of us kind of have an arbitrary rule? Okay, I'm going to give so much to God. And what, that's how much I'm given, and that's it. But these people were giving over and above. They wanted to voluntarily share in this work. So that group that first came, both in the fact that they were willing to leave and come and the fact that they were willing to share generously in a financial way were really an inspiring group. Perhaps it's no wonder we have their names recorded twice, both in Ezra 2 and in Nehemiah 7. Anything you want to say about all that? Okay. Um, in the end of verse 73, and when the seventh month came... The sons of Israel were in their cities. And I want you to notice what happens here. Would somebody read chapter 8, verses 1 to 8? You can skip the groups of names if you want, but chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. <clears throat> and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men and the women and all who could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday for the men and the women and those who could hear with understanding and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and at his left, Pedadiah, Mishael, Malachijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the people, the great, the Lord, the great God. And then when all the people answered, Amen, Amen, were lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sabbathai, Hoijah, Messiah, Helita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave them sense and helped them to understand the reading. Wow. There are so many great things in this text. Some of you probably know this text well, but it's a great passage. Now, we're kind of interrupting the story of what we're going to do to repopulate Jerusalem. We'll pick that back up in chapter 11. Meanwhile, a break to see what happens here in this seventh month, which is just so encouraging. The people all come together in the square, and what do the people do? They listen to the law being read. What did they do before that? They told them to bring out both. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law and read it to them. Now, Ezra the scribe, I don't believe we found him uh, having a prominent role so far in Nehemiah, but there's a book of Ezra. And Ezra, in the book of Ezra, in chapter 7 through 10, had come back to this area from Persia about 13 years before to try to bring the people back to the Lord. And so he's, he's got a role now, 13 years later, together with Nehemiah, in this kind of a spiritual revival. But the people take the initiative, and they ask for the law to be brought and read. Now, what impresses you about the people here, besides the fact that they're the people who ask Ezra to read the law to them? What else impresses you? Josh. The length of time. How long was it? From morning until midday. Early morning till midday. What midday would be when? Noon. Yeah, noon. Early morning, <laughs> I suppose, would be like sun up. How many of you want to hear the Bible read from sun up till noon? Well, knowing you, you probably would. <laughs> See, more or less what's been happening in these studies. But that, that's a challenge, and it's encouraging. It's encouraging to see that desire, that eagerness on the part of these people to want to hear God's word. They hear it read and explained. Now, what is their posture during this time? They're standing. They're standing. That would be harder, wouldn't it? Uh, that seemed to have been a matter of their respect for the message. And, it, and who all is there together listening? Men and women and all who could understand yeah. what they heard. Men, women, and children old enough to understand. They understand that the words for everybody who's got enough comprehension to get it. So they're all there as one man standing for six hours more or less listening to the word read and being explained to them because they wanted it. And, and I, I want to, one of the things that I've tried to do is to just encourage different groups of people 
who are really dedicated to listening to the word by sharing with them stories of other people who have the same feeling. When I was in Brazil in April, probably one of the best things I've ever been involved in in Brazil, there was a legitimate four-day holiday weekend. I don't know if we'll ever have that again. But it was, it was Friday and Monday were real holidays. And uh, the group in Porto Alegre rented a place like this, only better in some ways, to have a four-day <laughs> intensive study. They have about 35 in that congregation. There were about 70 people there. People had flown in from several different Brazilian states, probably at 12 or 13 different congregations, to spend these four days together studying. We had, it was like a, it was like a hotel. There was, there was rooms, like dormitory rooms, two-door room. Uh, there was a, a cafeteria where they provided the food. There was a great conference room to study in, plenty of other places to congregate and talk. It was just like being at a camp. It was so encouraging. And uh, we studied uh, in the mornings, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, from about 9 till noon, we studied from about 2 till 8 in the afternoons, the book of Numbers. And when we weren't studying, there was all kinds of spiritual conversation. They just spontaneously, several nights, got together in the chapel that was there and sang and sang and sang. It was just really uplifting. And they wanted it. They were eager for it. They were excited about it. Many of them had paid a lot of money. It cost money. And, and, and people would pitch in. Uh, the, the amount that they needed to for, for their part of the stay. And, 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 and we're eager for that. It's encouraging to me that it's not just people like us that want that. People everywhere want that. When I went to Mozambique in May, I went to an area that had no electricity, no running water, and virtually nothing else that you know we would ever consider to be conveniences and comforts. Uh, it, at where I was... Uh, I was interested in seeing Simon's pictures last night. Simon's pictures reminded me a lot of a lot of places in Brazil, and maybe in the south of Mozambique, but really where I was was more primitive than what he showed. What he showed. And, uh, and yet the people, they were together for about a week and a half, studying mornings and afternoons, and just sleeping on the ground at night. Uh, there's no means of transportation over there so many of them had figured out however they needed to to get there and uh, just to encourage you they were eager they asked questions, 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 questions we tried to get through Matthew in about 10 or 11 days I couldn't quite finish it and you know I don't let a lot of grass go under my feet usually when I teach Um, so there's just so many questions but but everywhere um Mike Bozeman and Kelly Cook are going to be in Portugal uh, starting, I think, a week from Saturday. You get there, right? And the five or six Christians that they know of and we know of in the country of Portugal will be together pretty much around the clock for a week to learn as much as they can from Mike and Kelly. So, you know, people who love God, they want to hear his word. It's his word. It's exciting. And we want to know it. And, and so it's not, it's wonderful that you guys want to be here and that you're eager for these studies. 
And I don't hear anybody complaining, oh, it's so long, oh, do we have another class. Thank God. You're just like a lot of other brothers that we've got all over the world that love God, and they're hungry for his word, and they want as much of it as they can get. And, and don't we all? I mean, this is, this is, this is our food. <laughs> this, is, this is the awesome part. And uh, when we think about it being God's word that we're listening to, it makes us, it makes us excited. Thoughts and comments? All right, I'd like to, to leave you with those uh, thoughts. I think that's a good place to break. I may say a couple more things in the morning about this section, and this section goes on to some other things, some really cool and encouraging things. So I appreciate your listening and your thinking about these things.